an island nation that wants to be involved in the politics of wider Europe, but also removed from it. A fractious debate over power, sovereignty and the rule of law. The experiences of emigrants and immigrants. No, these are not, or not just, a potted summary of 21st century political events, but rather of the themes raised by a 13th century Icelandic saga, and the travels and travails of its hero, Egil. Egil's saga gives us a tantalising glimpse into identity, place and history. Kate Marlowe, PhD researcher in Durham University's Department of History, tells the tale. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded at our series of late summer public lectures in 2019. So I'm going to be speaking to you about Egil Saga, uh, which is an Icelandic saga from the 13th century. Uh, this is a picture of Egil. He's an Icelandic warrior poet. Um, we're told in the saga that he's in fact very ugly. So we kind of think of him as a, a kind of slightly off-putting, but in some ways quite attractive character in spite of his physical appearance. And so maybe the Icelanders had something a little bit interesting going on there, something a little bit more modern than we might usually imagine. And so I'm going to begin with a little bit of context about Iceland in the medieval period, uh, and then I'm going to give you an extended, I would say, overview of the text, so you know what I'm actually talking about. Um, and then I'll move on to discussing the role of time and place in interpreting the text, because I think that that's the theme of these late summer lectures. So, Iceland was in fact uninhabited until the year 870 CE, and in around 870 Iceland was discovered by Norwegian sailors, um, and a Norwegian called Floki spent the winter on the island. Um, so it's actually quite a long voyage across to Iceland. We don't know entirely what he was trying to do when he got there. Um, probably just blown off course. It happens quite a lot uh, in this period. Um, so our medieval sources suggest that Iceland was settled approximately 878 and 930 um, by immigrants primarily from Norway uh, who were looking to avoid the rising power of King Harald Finehair, who you might have heard of as kind of the first Norwegian king. He unified Norway, but um, a lot of the kind of more powerful landowners didn't particularly enjoy having their power taken away from them, and so uh, legged it across, and some of them uh, ended up settling in Iceland. Uh, so they established what's known as the uh, Icelandic uh, Free State, or Commonwealth, which was a farming society with a quite uh, interesting legal system for the period. Uh, the system was not democratic in any recognisable way, uh, but it was representative, as the law was governed by powerful individuals known as Gothi, who came from influential families, and every landowner was required to attach themselves to a Gothar in a kind of member of parliament kind of situation, um, who would deal with legal matters on their behalf. But it's not uh, it's not constituency based as we would have now. Um, you can in fact attach yourself to any Gothar that you please. Um, so legal and political decisions were taken at quarter courts uh, and at the annual all thing, which all the Gothi met and the law speaker recited the laws, so it's uh, in this period a kind of oral society. Uh, we don't have any written laws until uh, about the 14th century. So uh, by changing your allegiance between Gothi, landowners could affect some political change, but it still wasn't democratic. You have a very limited choice of Gothi. It only comes from very powerful families and only landowners can attach themselves, only men can attach themselves to Gothi. So if you're a woman or if you don't own land or if you're a slave, then 
you don't get anything, which is kind of part of the course in this period. Um, and by the 1200s, the Gothi system had fallen under the control of a few powerful families who had destabilized the free state in their quest for power. Um, and that you see families start to collect up both the ships and uh, start to kind of play off against each other and, and the kind of whole system falls in on itself. And this led to the 1262 submission to Norway, at which point uh, Iceland lost its political independence and fell under the Norwegian crown. So we see a kind of narrative of the loss of independence, but we don't really know to what extent Iceland had ever been truly independent from Norway. Uh, they're very reliant on Norway for uh, trade. There's no wood on Iceland because uh, they immediately cut down the forest when they settle and they don't grow back. So um, <laughs> there's still no forest on Iceland. So all their like shipbuilding, all the materials for shipbuilding come from Norway, which, as you can imagine, is quite a big deal for them being an island nation very much attached to Scandinavia. So they, they like to tell a narrative of independence. Whether that comes through in the sources is uh, less easy to see. Um, and many of the powerful families in Iceland seek favour from the Norwegian monarchy to elevate their position even before the submission. So uh, whether or not you even have a sort of cultural independence, let alone natural independence, is up for debate, I would say. So Icelandic sagas are a, common, are a collection of texts that detail the actions of heroic families and individuals. Uh, these texts are written in prose in Old Norse and are often anonymous. Uh, there were many types of sagas written in Iceland. Some are historical and detail the lives of saints or Norwegian kings. They're not my favourite ones. Um, others are about specifically Icelandic characters, and these are called the family sagas. So Eyl's saga is one of these texts and follows the exploits of a warrior poet who travels across Scandinavia. So our earliest sources of Icelandic literature come from the late 12th century, but saga writing begins in earnest in the mid-13th century, and our earliest manuscript fragment of Egil Saga is in around 1250, um, which puts it kind of right around the submission period, which is why it's interesting. Um, so this early text is very fragmentary, and the full account of the saga only comes from a 14th century manuscript called Mothrul book, which is a mouthful. Um, and while the early manuscript appears to be in the same class as Mothrul book, uh, that is, it's more like that text than it, is about, than it is like other versions of the text that exist. Um, it must be remembered when studying the text that the 13th century version may have differed somewhat from what we have now. Uh, therefore, when we study Eyl's saga, we must bear in mind the 13th century and 14th century manuscript contexts, um, uh, but also the uh, fact that the saga takes place in the late 9th and 10th centuries, uh, beginning with a description of Egil's family's struggles against Harold Feinherr in the 870s, right around the beginning of the settlement period, and ending with the account of Egil's descendants in around 1000. How accurate this account of 10th century life in Iceland and Scandinavia is, is very debatable. Uh, it's tempting to use sagas to build a picture of early medieval period, um, but because we have like very, 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 very few sources from the early medieval period, so anything that we can kind of scrounge together which might be a written uh, record of this period would be great, but uh, unfortunately there's a two and a half century gap between the events in Egil Saga uh, and its first fragmentary manuscript, so we can't necessarily use it as we might like. Um, so we therefore have to be careful when trying to understand the context of Egil Saga and consider the two manuscript contexts likely either side of the submission as well as the period in which it's set. So I'm going to move on to uh, tell you the plot of Egil Saga. So Eyal's saga begins, as most Icelandic sagas do, with an account of Eyal's ancestors leaving Norway and settling in Iceland. In the case of this saga, the narrative begins some years before Eyal's birth, with Eyal's grandfather, Kveldulf, 
who is a wealthy landowner in Norway. Feldhoff is described as being strong and sullen and ugly, family traits that our protagonist inherits, and he is described as being successful in his Viking expeditions. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, Viking is not a noun, it's an adjective, so you go Viking, um, which is the process of going abroad and pillaging and taking riches yourself. Um, so people are not Vikings in that most of the time they would have been farmers. Um, they just go on fun Viking expeditions as a hobby slash prestige activity. Um, so Scala, uh, so Kveldus goes Viking, but uh, in his older years he chooses to settle down and have some children. And he has two sons, Thorolf and Skalagrim. Thorolf being handsome and charming, and Skalagrim taking after his father. Uh, in his old age, Kveldulf is troubled by the rising power of Harald Feinherr, who is expanding his power through Norway, defeating anyone who doesn't swear fealty to him. And uh, the reason he's called Harald Feinherr, supposedly, is because uh, he swore when he began his unification project that he would not cut his hair until he had unified all of Norway, and so his hair grew very long, but apparently it wasn't kind of fine, it was actually kind of gross, because, like, hair, like... You know, hygiene wasn't great in the period, so like, I think fine hair is maybe, I don't know if it's the exact translation really, kind of just Harold hairy guy, gross guy, yeah. <laughs> um, so Harold calls on Kveldorf to attend him, but Kveldorf declines, believing that nothing good comes from associating with a king, and he gives quite a long speech about how awful kingship is. He instead suggests that his son Thorolf would be interesting in joining, interested in joining Harold's household uh, when he returns from his own Viking expeditions. He is correct, and Thorolf joins Harold and proves himself a loyal subject. However, Thorolf's rivals in a property dispute poison the king's mind against him, and the king kills Thorolf. So the king refuses to pay for Thorolf's death, which would be the acceptable way to deal with the situation, and uh, it seems a little bit maybe callous to us, but families whose sons have been killed would be expecting repayment, and that would kind of settle the matter, and mean that there was no more grievance. Uh, the king refuses to do this, so Kveldulf leaves Norway with his surviving son Skalagrim for Iceland. So Kveldulf dies on the journey, and the crew put him in a coffin and throw him overboard, uh, when the boat lands in Iceland, they find his coffin, and Skalagrim claims the land where it washed up. And this is a morbid version of the high seat pillar tradition, in which an incoming family throw the high seat pillars overboard and then claim land wherever they wash up, um, which gives a kind of uh, perhaps divinely or supernaturally guided idea to their uh, land taking. So Skalagrim and his wife Bera make their home in Borg in Iceland, and this becomes the family estate. And they have two sons, Ruth Thorolf again, and Eil. So Thorolf II takes after his uncle, being handsome and charming, and Eil takes after his father and grandfather, being less attractive and notably sullen. But he is, from an early age, noted as being a good a poet and good with words and a very strong fighter. Uh, so after an altercation with his father, and Skalagrim and Eil get on very badly, and they end up, well... Skalagrim kills Eil's nanny, and Eil kills one of Skalagrim's like housecarls in uh, response. So they don't get on super well. Um, so uh, Eil bullies his older brother into taking him to Norway. So Thorolf has already been to Norway and made friends with uh, Eric Bloodaxe, who is uh, Harald Feinherr's son and now the king of Norway. Uh, in Norway, Thorolf gives gifts to King Eric, um, and he also tells King Eric that the gift that 
he was given last time to give to Scarlegrim went down incredibly well when actually Scarlegrim threw into the sea. So he's doing a little bit of diplomacy. Thorof is definitely the brother that has all the diplomatic gifts. Um, and he and Egil go to Thora Haraldsson's family. Um, so Thora Haraldsson is uh, their father's foster brother. And fostering is an incredibly important relationship in the sagas. Uh, so you would usually send uh, your child, usually your son, out to another influential family uh, to live for years and years, their whole childhood, and that foster family would uh, become basically like blood relatives to you. Uh, and fostering, particularly between royalty, is very important in this period. So Thorolf marries Thoris' niece, Asgerda, and Egil makes best friends with Thoris' son, Arinbjorn. This is a very important relationship to come. Um, so Egil makes trouble for himself, as he likes to do in Norway, by killing a man called Bard, um, and he's one of the king's favourites in a dispute over Bard's hospitality. So Egil and his friends visit Bard at his home, and Bard only offers them a milk drink instead of beer, so they're kind of annoyed, but Bard says, like, oh, it's all I've got, I haven't got any ale, I'm sorry, really embarrassing, yes. But then the king and queen turn up, um, and Bard miraculously produces some beer for them, um, and then spends the evening plying Egil and his companions with so much alcohol that all of them, except Egil, are overwhelmed by it. Um, and Egil, on the other hand, keeps drinking without succumbing, and he recites a poem, criticising Bard for not serving him and his friends with ale before the king and queen arrived. So this is kind of the first time that we see the real importance of Egil's poetry to the poem, uh, to the saga, um, because Bard is so offended by this poem criticising his uh, generosity, that he plots with the queen to poison Egil. Um, so Egil is brought a poisoned drink, but he recites another poem and writes runes on the drinking horn in his own blood, which causes the poison cup to explode. And Egil then leaves, but before he leaves, he has another uh, little horn of beer and he just murders Bard on his way out. Just, just on his way out. Um, and in this way, Egil manages to make an enemy of King Eric, and even more so his queen Gunhilda, who was rumoured to have some supernatural powers. Uh, so Eil and Thorolf make themselves scarce, probably a good idea, and they go Viking down in Denmark, and they burn down the town of Lund. Um, and the saga is quite interesting in that it always tells of Viking activity in a very kind of blasé fashion, and they just go down, and they just set it on fire a bit, and then they leave, and you never really hear... Uh, so there are other sides where you might hear more about the riches that you get from Viking, but this one is more about um, Eil himself as a character, so just a little side note that he just puts some villagers to the torch and all of that, it's fine. Um, so they uh, return to Norway after their Viking expedition, and their friend Thorir goes to the king and the queen and persuades the king to allow Eil to remain in Norway. The king agrees, but Gunhilda maintains her animosity towards Eil, and she sends her brothers out to make trouble for Eil and Thorolf, and this makes the pair decide to come to England. They go to King Athelstan as mercenaries, because according to the saga, when Athelstan became king, the territory subdued by his father Edward and grandfather Alfred the Great rebelled against him, and Eil and Thorolf acquit themselves very well in a battle against King Olaf of Scotland. We're not entirely sure who that is. There doesn't really seem to be a King Olaf of Scotland. Um, but in the saga there is. And he becomes... So they become great friends with Athelstan. But as the battle continues over many days, Thorolf is killed in an ambush as he's trying to outflank the Scottish army. So Eowyn warns his brother 
uh, but his sadness seems assuaged when King Athelstan pays him and his father for Thorolf's death. So kind of in a clear juxtaposition to the way Harold Finehair behaved when the elder Thorolf was killed, um, Athelstan makes good and he gives Egil some land in England as well as riches to take home to his father. Although the saga does say that he never actually gave them to his father, he just kind of kept them as Egil for you. Um, he also asks Egil to stay in his court and gives him gifts in recognition of his skill as a poet. Um, but Egil turns down Athelstan's offer and uh, he says he'll come, he'll come back later, but he doesn't want to settle down right now. Uh, instead, he's got his eyes on something else because he goes back to Norway and uh, che just checks in on his late brother's wife, Asgerda. Um, so Asgerda is living with Aaron Bjorn uh, because he's her cousin um, and you have to kind of have a male guardian in this period, really. Um, so Egil asks Aaron Bjorn if maybe he could marry his brother's widow, um, which seems to have been pretty common in this period and probably, in fact, encouraged because having widows, particularly widows with children, um, Thorolf and Asgerda have a daughter. So you have this, these sort of loose ends that need looking after. Um, so Aaron Bjorn cons consents and they marry in Norway um, at Aaron Bjorn's home. But then Eyal decides to return to Iceland because Aaron Bjorn advises him that Queen Gunhilda is still out to get him. She's sending all her brothers around the place to go and make trouble for him. So uh, they head on back to Iceland. Um, so Eyal goes back to his father's home. Um, and by this time, he's been gone for 12 years, which seems to pass very quickly in the saga. Um, and his father is an old man when he gets back. Eyal seems to have settled in Iceland, uh, and he takes over the management of his father's land, but then he hears that his father-in-law has died, and his brother-in-law, his wife's sister's husband, Bergenund, has claimed his father-in-law's land and property. And this is the big property dispute of the saga. Um, so Eyal returns to Arambjorn in Norway, and Arambjorn facilitates Eyal in bringing a legal case against his brother, in law at the Gulathing, an assembly in Norway. So they both make their cases before the king and the judges, and Egil makes a good case. Uh, he sings a poem, and also he's provided by Aaron Bjorn, who kind of seems to basically do everything sensible that Egil might need, um, with witnesses, which is a really important part of Scandinavian law and also English law in this period. Um, but Queen Gunhilda intervenes, and she instructs her brothers to ensure that the judges make the correct decision which again is a recurring theme in Scandinavian law as well, that you sort of go through this process of bringing witnesses and making your case and, you know, referring to the legal statutes and then actually the person with the biggest army kind of comes out on top somehow. Um, so seeing that he won't get a fair judgment, Eil challenges his brother-in-law to combat to settle the matter, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do in the period. Um, however, the king threatens him with his superior numbers, and Aaron Bjorn persuades Eil to leave with the matter unsettled. As he leaves, Eil recites an unflattering poem about the king, and King Eric makes him an outlaw and decrees that he should be killed. Um, so King Eric is then called away uh, to go to war against his brothers over the succession, because the idea that kind of the oldest son should succeed their father is not 100% settled in this period, so you get quite a lot of, of uh, succession disputes. Um, so Eil takes the opportunity to kill his brother-in-law, Bergenund, with his signature mixture of violence and mocking poetry. And um, in this altercation, which happens on a Norwegian island, uh, just here, um, Bergenund has 
been effectively in hiding with some of the king's men, including the king's son, and Eyal single-handedly kills all 13 of these men, including the prince. He also uses a horse's head to place a curse on the king and queen, and it's called a nipping, and it involves uh, putting a horse's head on a pole and writing some runes, and then you put the uh, pole up and you face the horse's head towards Norway or the mainland. Um, and that's what you place the curse. So you, what exactly he was hoping the curse would do, we don't really know. But um, he's feeling fairly strongly about the king and queen at this point. So Eyal then, quite sensibly, returns home to Iceland. Um, in Iceland, Eyal's father, Skarlagrim, dies, leaving Eyal in control of uh, the not inconsiderable family estates. However, Eyal only stays in Iceland for two years before he starts to get restless, and the quotation that was in the title of this presentation, Dagathirstic Eyal Okata, then Eyal became sad, is the reason given for uh, Eyal setting out again for England. Uh, so, off he goes to England, um, and by this time, King Eric has lost the throne of Norway to his brother Hakon, and has come to England to set up his court. In the face of determined Scandinavian presence, Athelstan agrees to give Eric control of Northumbria and makes his home in York. Unfortunately for all concerned, Eyal is blown of course as he sails down to see Athelstan in the south, and uh, he ends up being shipwrecked in Eric's land. Um, but fortunately for him, his good friend Aaron Bjorn, who's kind of been a bit of a fixer, uh, has come to England with King Eric and is in York, so he makes his way to him. And obviously, Arambuon is basically horrified to see Egil, um, but uh, they decide that the safest way to deal with the dangerous situation of Harry Egil, who has been outlawed by King Eric and killed Eric's son in Arambuon's home, is to go before the king at night and beg him to pardon Egil. So this is a risky move, and at first, Egil, the King Eric is pretty keen on killing Egil, uh, but Egil wins him over by reciting a poem. Um, also, Arambuon has brought Egil to the king at night, and in Scandinavian tradition, Killing someone at night is murder, whereas just killing someone, kind of okay, as long as you've like, probably got some reasons and you have to go and tell other people that you've killed them. It can't be a secret killing. So killing someone at night is a secret killing, and so it's therefore murder. Um, so uh, the king allows Egil to go to Aaron Bjorn's home for the night, um, but Egil must still face the king's displeasure in the morning. Um, so Aaron Bjorn recommends that he spend the night composing a praise poem for Eric. And he does this in spite of a possibly supernaturally motivated bird disturbing him all night with its song. But Aaron Bjorn very kindly sits on the roof all night and scares the bird away. So um, uh, Eyal is able to finish his poem and he performs it in front of the king the next morning. And Eric likes it so much that he allows Eyal to leave with his life. So the poem is a traditional praise poem. Uh, in which Egil admires Eric's bravery and generosity as a king, talking about his prowess on the battlefield and his gift-giving. Um, but there's clearly a mocking undertone to the poem that suggests Eric believes quite the opposite. So quite why Eric is pleased enough to pardon, or at least release, Eyal because of this poem is unclear. And the critic John Hines has written, Egil was lucky to have a king either so exceptionally blessed with literary taste, or so singularly devoid of it as Eric Bloodaxe. Um, so kind of make of that what you will. Um, after leaving Eric's court, on the condition that the king never has to see him again, which is kind of fair enough, um, Eyal goes south to Athelstan's court, where he stays for a while, uh, before deciding to return to Norway. 
Um, he wishes to return because he still hasn't actually managed to secure the property that he disputed with his brother-in-law, which resulted in Bergman's death. And Bergman's brother, Atley, has now claimed the property in Egil's absence. Aaron Bjorn's nephew, Thorstein, is also in England, and as his father has just died, he accompanies Egil to Norway to secure his own property. Um, so they briefly visit Thorstein's home in the winter, for the winter, because moving around Scandinavia in the winter is not super fun. Um, so most of this action will take place in the summer. Um, so Egil and Thorstein make the trip up to Trondheim, which is up there, um, to petition the new king, Hakon, uh, who is King Eric's brother and Athelstan's foster son, which I said was very important. And you see, Athelstan kind of likes Eil, uh, so possibly Eil's hoping for a little bit of a softer relationship with Hakon. Um, so Hakon grants Thorstein's petition, which is fairly straightforward. I would like to inherit my father's property. Um, but Egil's reputation has preceded him, and although Hakon grants him the right to pursue his property in Norway, he asks Egil to leave Norway and return home to Iceland, as he worries Egil will make trouble, which he probably would. Um, so Egil kind of, because he's got to wait to the Gula thing in order to make his legitimate claim for the property, um, so he spends a little bit of time just travelling around Norway um, and he finds himself staying at the farm of another of Aaron Bjorn's nephews, Fridjir. Uh, so the family are being terrorised by a Swedish berserker called Lot, who wishes to marry Fridjir's sister, she doesn't get a name, um, and take the family's land. And as Fridjir is very young and his father's dead, um, he can't really defend himself against Lot's challenge because he's probably like... 15 or something, so what's he going to do against a massive Swedish berserker? Nobody knows. Um, so Egil agrees to fight Lot instead. And Egil fights Lot on an island, then they break the farm, um, which is kind of a very recurring theme. They like to take it out to an island whenever there's going to be some combat. And he uh, defeats him with his prowess in combat, and again, his mocking poetry, which is basically just him describing in poetry all the ways he's going to kill Lot, which would be a bit off-putting, I suppose, if you were going to fight somebody, if they just like make up a great poem about murdering you. So Egil then goes to the Gula thing to, to pursue his property dispute, and this time he's able to challenge Atli, Bergenon's brother, to combat. So Egil fights Atli with his bare hands, and he finally kills him by biting at his throat, which is charming. Um, so what started as a kind of quite uh, detached property dispute about his uh, wife, sister's husband taking his father-in-law's property has turned into this whole big kind of a dispute with the Norwegian crown, and also he buys out someone's throat, which is great. Um, so he's apparently satisfied with this outcome, and so Egil returns to Iceland, where the saga tells us that he minds his own business and gets on well. Um, so when he is in Iceland, he is a good citizen, and he settles down for many years, and he has five children, three sons and two daughters. And he also has his uh, stepdaughter as well with him. However, as soon as Egil learns that King Eric is dead, and he would therefore be relatively safe going abroad, uh, he goes to visit Aaron Bjorn, who has returned to Norway after Eric's death. Uh, Egil is there to administer the property that he already has in Norway, his father-in-law's property. Um, but he also wants to claim the property of Lot, the Swedish man that he killed, which has now entered the king's treasury. So Aaron Bjorn is called upon to go and plead his case to King Hakon about wanting to get the money that Lot had, that now the king has. And Aaron Bjorn said something cutting about the king's treasury having a wide entrance but a very narrow exit. Um, and uh, Hakon tells Aaron Bjorn that he's risking his position in Norway by taking the side of a foreigner 
And he basically says, like, do you like the Norwegian crowd or do you like your friend Eil who's from Iceland? And Aaron Bjorn said, mm, forget about it. And the matter remains unresolved. So instead, Eil goes Viking with Aaron Bjorn for a while before going to visit Aaron Bjorn's nephew Thorstein again. Um, so while he's there, they receive word from the king that Hakon wants Thorstein to go on a dangerous mission to a rebellious part of Norway to collect tribute. So Egil determines that Thorstein is too inexperienced to go. Again, we have this sort of uh, idea of the young nephews of Aaron Bjorn needing a little bit of Egil's help. So he decides to undertake the mission himself, and it's a dangerous trip, and Egil is wounded, but he is successful. And this improves Thorstein's relationship with King Hakon, because they hadn't been getting on that well. Um, but it doesn't seem to do much for Egil's position in Norway, and it's not entirely clear why this doesn't win the king over, but I guess Egil just looks like more trouble than he's worth. So Egil decides that it's his time in Norway is over, and he sells his lands, and he departs for Iceland. Um, and Egil doesn't leave Iceland again, because at this time he is kind of old, and uh, he makes advantageous marriages for his daughters, and he lives peacefully without any recorded disputes. However, Egil's two older sons die before him, and Egil composes actually a very moving poem to express his grief. Um, he lives into his 90s and lives with his niece and nephew-in-law, um, so that's his stepdaughter, niece and stepdaughter, because he's married his uh, brother's widow. Um, and uh, she kind of seems to be his favourite, even though they're not actually father and daughter. And um, she cares for him as he goes blind, but he's otherwise healthy in his old age. And the kind of blind poet stereotype I think that comes from Homer is uh, reborn here. Um, so when he dies, he's survived by his third son, Thorstein, who himself has many children, and you hear about the sort of clan of the Skarlagrim sons. Um, and so the final chapter of the saga tells of Thorstein's baptism when Christianity comes to Iceland in approximately 1000 CE. So, um, and there you have the Scandinavian world. Um, so it's quite a nice ending. We know when Christianity came to Iceland, so we can locate it very easily in history. Um, and it kind of brings a Christian flavor to the poem that had otherwise been lacking, because of course when the poem was being written in 1215, Iceland was indeed Christian. Uh, so you have at length now heard Eyal's saga, um, and what can we say about it? Uh, there are clearly a number of themes in the saga that are of interest. Uh, to start with, the text has a number of apparently historical elements that place the saga very much in specific places and times. Athelstan's England, Eric's York, and Hakon's Norway are all very evocative of the, of the Viking period uh, that this saga appears to be a record of. It's very tempting and has at times been a popular academic technique to use these sagas as evidence of life in the Viking Age and of historical events. However, there, are some, uh, there may be some accurate elements in the saga, but it is certainly not historically accurate overall. For example, uh, in the saga, Athelstan rules England at the same time that Eric has his court in York, whereas in reality, Eric was ruling con contemporaneously with Eardred, one of Athelstan's younger brothers, so at least a decade after Athelstan's death. Um, therefore, the storyline that Egil is on his way to visit Athelstan when he's shipwrecked near Eric's court is clearly a nonsense. Uh, it appears that the saga was woven into history by people who were either unfamiliar with or took a fairly liberal approach to the facts. And the Icelanders have some fairly, well, what we would, what we think to the best of our knowledge is fairly accurate histories. So I suspect people are just seeing a little bit uh, liberal and maybe just making things just so for their stories, which um, would happen today as well when people are writing historical fiction. So what can we actually learn from Egil's saga then? 
Um, Engels' saga may not tell us much about the facts of the 10th century, uh, but it does tell us quite a lot about how the 13th century Icelanders wanted to view the 10th century. So when the saga was consigned to parchment in around 1250, the scribe or scribes were presenting the contemporary view of a settlement-era society, a little bit like the 20th and 21st century Western films. So um, this, we might use this genre as a useful comparison for how we're going to think about this. So the Western film genre has changed our, as our society has altered. The early films uh, presented inaccurate and now politically incorrect cowboy and Indian narratives with hyper-masculine gunslingers saving fainting, corseted maidens. Um, modern takes on the genre tend to be more diverse and nuanced in their representation of race and gender. Uh, the Magnificent Seven films are a good example of this, because there's a 1960s version and a 2016 version. So uh, in the uh, 1960 version, all of the titular Magnificent Seven are played by Caucasian actors, even though one of the characters is Mexican, and it's all a bit, little bit to modernise, not great. Um, and uh, their, uh, their mission is to save a Mexican village from villainous Mexican bandits, uh, the only women in the film hide from the main action in fear for their virtue. Um, however, in the 2016 remake, The Magnificent Seven include an African-American U.S. Marshal, a Korean knife expert, a Mexican outlaw, and a young Native American warrior, uh, as well as uh, the Caucasian characters. And the village they must save is a frontier village terrorized by a ruthless gold-mining tycoon uh, that a uh, review called Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> But they are cajoled, and they're cajoled into their mission uh, by a plucky, gun-wielding widow who is determined who is determined to save her village, and with whom none of the seven have a romantic relationship. Um, so it's all very modern. Um, the changes made in the 2016 film represent changes of modern sensibilities rather than a change of history. Um, of course, the 1960s film was not accurate. Uh, in its representation of frontier society, undoubtedly failing to represent the diversity of the period. Uh, the 2016 version showcases this diversity, but it is still extremely inaccurate and lacks any attempt to refer to historical reality. Uh, the aim of the film, the director has stated, was to modernise the Western genre, not make it any more historical. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Clearly, the purpose of the Western film genre is, is not to educate viewers about the factual history of frontier America, but rather to entertain. Um, however, if a historian a thousand years from now were looking for information about post-Civil War America, using either the 1960 or the 2016 Magnificent Seven films would be entirely unhelpful and give a warped view of historical reality. On the other hand, if a future historian wanted to find out about 20th and 21st century social history, comparing the two versions of the film would tell them quite a lot about how attitudes have changed in the 50 years between the films. So, why was I talking about Westerns? Um, we can take a similar approach when we read Icelandic sagas. There's also a, a similar time gap between the settlement and uh, these, the saga writing period as there is between now and the settlement and the frontier society in the US. Um, so when we read the Icelandic sagas, we can perhaps look for some kernels of fact, um, but it's hard to determine exactly what these are. It's easy to identify the inaccuracies, such as the discrepancy between Athelstan and Eric's reigns, which we can be sure are incorrect, but we must see the sagas as more representative of the 13th rather than the 10th century. Uh, there are a few social changes we must bear in mind when we consider the time gap between the settlement and the writing of Egil's saga. A major change was the introduction of Christianity to Iceland in 1000 CE, 
And this means that when the saga was written 250 years later, there was no one alive in Iceland who had practiced pagan religion. Um, and therefore, the representations of ritual and religion in Egil's saga may well be inaccurate. Um, as we have no pre-Christian texts concerning pre-Christian religion, we cannot say with any certainty that Icelandic pagan, what Icelandic paganism looked like. We can, however, discern something of what the 13th century Icelanders thought about their pagan past. Many of the sagas make little reference to religion, Egil's saga included, but Egil, using the saga as a symbol of Icelandic strength and cunning, does do a number of rituals, including cursing the king and queen, and we can only assume that because Egil lived in pre-Christian Iceland, these were pagan rituals. The fact that the saga deals so confidently with pagan activity suggests that the Icelanders were not uncomfortable with their pagan past, nor did they find the discussion of it taboo. Though Egil is a flawed character, it is not his lack of Christian faith that makes him so, but rather his ability to access non-Christian supernatural power is a strength. Another social change that occurs over the course of the Icelandic Free State is its relationship with Norway. Um, we don't know exactly the level of independence Iceland enjoyed when it was first settled, but as I've already mentioned, in, by the 13th century, the Gosi system had all but collapsed and power had been ceded to the Norwegian crown. This led to the earlier period being idealised in the 13th century as a time of true Icelandic freedom, even if possibly this freedom had ne never really existed. So against this backdrop, we can see why a saga that is so concerned with Norway might have been circulated and written down. As you all have hopefully noticed when I told you the story, almost none of the saga takes place in Iceland. All of the action involves Norway and Norwegian politics. This is quite unusual for Icelandic sagas, which are understandably uh, usually about events in Iceland, with famous sagas such as Njar's saga and Greta's saga having only three forays abroad. We might say that by sending Eil out into Norway to deal with the kings of the country that would shortly take control of Iceland, the elite of the period were negotiating their relationship with that foreign power. Eil is in some ways an idealised Icelandic character, albeit one who looks a little odd to modernise. He is described as physically unattractive, but he is skilled at fighting and poetry, two of the most prized Icelandic traits, and he defends his honour and pursues his rights to the fullest. Eil and his family are frequently at odds with despotic Norwegian kings, who deny their rights, such as when Harald refuses to pay for Thorolf's death, or when Eric doesn't allow Eil to pursue his property claim against Bergenund. He is able to get on better with kings that are more reasonable, such as Athelstan and Hakon, but he still keeps royal power at arm's length. Most importantly, he is always successful in his aims, whether he has the backing of the king or not, taking what he sees as his due by force when he cannot get a resolution from the king. As a statement of Icelandic identity, this is a pretty bold one. Some of the things that I would identify as being key to how the Icelanders viewed themselves were literature, law, and honour. The Icelanders were regarded as the medieval period's premier Scandinavian poets, a reputation that they promoted furiously, and most of the poets in Scandinavian royal courts at the time would have been Icelandic, um, and they're recognised by, uh, further, uh, further afield, they're recognised um, by mainland Europeans as being uh, incredible uh, historians and poets. Um, they were also very proud of their legal system, which kept peace in the free state for several centuries and saw them, according to legend, adopt Christianity with a single legal edict, uh, rather than the sort of hodgepodge of um, uh, conversions that you see in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the time or um, any violence or bloodshed. Uh, they simply go to the law speaker and say, should we be Christian? The law speaker thinks about it and he says, yes, and they're all Christian. 
um, although they are allowed to still eat horse meat and still allow their children to die of exposure if they so wish. This uh, legal system was predicated on a system of honour that required men to both pursue and defend their grievances to their absolute conclusion. The fact that Egil is travelling Scandinavia, using his skills as a poet to further his legal disputes over property and resolving them with violence when the law isn't as effective as he would like, makes him more or less an ideal Icelander. And what kind of impression does, his, does this perfect Icelander make on the rest of Scandinavia? Certainly a mixed one. Egil makes close friends with the likes of Aaron Bjorn and Athelstan. He helps people who are in need. Um, however, he also makes enemies of almost everyone in power, excluding Athelstan. And this means that even when a more favourably inclined king is on the Norwegian throne, Hakon, he still views Egil as a disruptive presence in his kingdom. Uh, so is this part of the saga a cautionary tale for proud Icelanders that sometimes one must curb one's pride to give up a little and, and give up a little independence for an easier life? Uh, perhaps that is one moral of the story. But the more consistent view in the text seems to be that kings cannot be trusted to behave fairly and give justice as they ought, and that while Norwegians may be happy to conform and put up with his despotism, the Icelanders will always be ready to disrupt the status quo. The saga also reads as a catalogue of Egil's triumph against other Scandinavian groups. He is physically more powerful than any of the opponents he fights, um, who include Norwegians, Danes, Scots and Swedes, and he is able to outwit all of these with his poetry as well. Um, he also equips himself well in larger scale battles and wins the favour of one king at least, um, and he can defend the rights of his friends and family. Certainly at a time of national insecurity, this story of triumph over affluent neighbours would, would have been understandably attractive. Uh, so if the saga speaks to Icelandic identity and insecurity of the period, it also represents the anxieties about Icelandic life on a more personal level. In the saga, staying in Iceland for any period of time is presented as a negative in the eyes of the protagonist. Egil first insists on leaving Iceland as a young man, and is always restless on his return, even though he's wealthy and prosperous there, and in spite of the fact that his family live in Iceland for the entirety of the narrative. There is a sense in the saga of constant escape from Iceland. Um, when Egil is young, the island doesn't seem big enough for both him and his father, and Egil leaves before his boisterous nature can disrupt the peace at home. But even as Skarlagrim ages and after his death, and even when Egil takes over the running of the land and has his own children on the island, leaving seems to be his highest priority. Staying in Iceland makes Egil melancholy, and he prefers the danger of a life on the seas and in foreign lands to the apparently oppressive stability of family life in Iceland. However, he is always viewed as a foreigner in Norway and elsewhere. It is only when Egil has exhausted every welcoming avenue abroad that he returns home for good. And there is a sense that it is only his old age that keeps him there. The feeling that Iceland is not the first choice of home for Egil and his family pervades the saga. Egil's father came to Iceland because he couldn't get along with the Norwegian king and was more or less exiled to the island. Egil makes this a family tradition, showing himself unable to make a home anywhere other than Iceland due to his repeated bulking under royal control, but not seeming particularly happy there. Iceland is a haven where Egil and his family can find peace away from capricious royal power, but it is also a peripheral location away from the main action of the saga and away from the political action of mainland Scandinavia. This paradox of freedom and isolation, wanting to be involved in mainland politics but struggling to do so on their own terms, may perhaps most keenly reflect the 13th century Icelandic experience. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, 
or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 